Hello, everybody. Today we talk about bathing. This is part two. This is something like how water became more than water. This is a look back. Bathing old world and new. The conversation about both. And then we're going to sort of end with a little hint toward baptism. And when we come back for session three on bathing, we're going to get into the whole idea of baptism. How it works, how it's related to bathing, and how human beings, we got to get clean. All right, bathing, guys, let's start with the Romans. You want to? Last week, we took a look at just like, I don't know, how I bathe. <laughs> how we bathe in first things, which I think is a sort of a, you know, I don't know, it's sort of an echo of the old world. And now let's take a look at some history and how it all sort of points us towards something ritual, something true, something about our nature. Let's start with the Romans. We could jump back further, we will, but right now, I just, I want to get a bathhouse. This is this is a thing. Big, fun, event-driven bathhouses. That's let's go Romans, right? If you read a little bit of about this, there's a there's a book by Virginia Sarah Smith, a very light person. She says that bathhouses in the Roman period were mostly about pleasure, politics, and propaganda, and less about hygiene and disease prevention. And I think she's probably right. Right. Just go to a bathhouse in the East. Maybe in Georgia, I'll take you. She does like, however, in her book, implying that ancients were like dumb about germs. But I think mostly they were prioritizing. Right. Fear. So they were kind of more worried about the disease of loneliness than, say, the. A skin rash. That's what I think. Call me crazy. Sure, they didn't know about germs the same way we did, but they they kind of got it. It's just that it was a very important part of their world, right? So to clean themselves, just to get into the Roman way of doing it, Romans often rub their skin with oil and then scrape it off with a tool called a strigil. The Romans also made elaborate soaps. They used razors pumice stones, tweezers. They used creams of all sorts, especially the women, and they removed unwanted body hair. Yeah, man. And if a Roman woman, or a, a man for that matter, decided to join the cult of Mithras, which was quite a big cult at the time of Christ, then they would also clean themselves ritually. The ritual cleaning, don't, I don't want you to think like, once every four years. It was often. And here's how it's told to us by a Christian named Tertullian in the 200s, the early 200s, 200 years after Christ's resurrection. He writes, likewise, the Mithrists, they honor their gods themselves by washing. Moreover, by carrying water around and sprinkling it. Everywhere they go, they expiate. Houses, temples, and whole cities purifying them. And they presume that the effect of their doing so is regeneration. So the cult of Mithra, its followers were into ritual cleaning and also cleaning. Getting clean. And as you might guess, 
This was not unlike the Greek world. So a bath in the sanctuary of the semi-god, the daemon Trophonius. Well, if you took a bath in that sanctuary, it allowed you to get clean and you could do it often. And it was said to give you a slight degree of immortality. And I know what you're thinking. Can anyone have a slight degree of immortality? <laughs> well, think of it as like an invitation into heaven for followers of Trophonius. Trophonius and other Greek demiurges, right, that belong to these what, what historians call mystic cults. These cats often use water to invite their subjects to something like a greater X, Y, or Z, a greater vitality, a greater immortality, a greater beginning, a greater regeneration. It was a step up. Washing or immersion, right, in water was a thing. Now, I'm not, if you're a mechanical thinker and you're like, wait, is he saying that when they washed, they were cleaned, they were purified, they were made... Wait a minute, Trophonius and the Mithrists were, their gods are real? It, stop going that direction. Okay. I'm just saying that water and washing was in alignment with the cultural need to get clean. There was a sense of this. And you're probably saying, yeah, duh, every culture. Well, be careful. It changes. People washed. They washed to get pure. Even those crazy pagan Greeks. Cleanliness was next to little g godliness. Look at the Egyptians. Way before the Greeks, actually. They had tons of water rites, right? They had this book, the, the book of going forth for the day. That was the name of the book. It's like a holy book. You see an account of bathing a newborn child performed to purify them, right? And purify all their physical blemishes that were acquired in the womb. So the womb was like pounding on this little kid and we got to clean him up. I wish they that had happened to me to clean up what amounted to a massive forehead. That's a blemish. I had blemishes on my forehead. Those have gone away since I've gotten older. But my forehead itself seems like a blemish. And it would have been nice to have gotten that blemish taken care of. Anyway, uh, the Nile was also qualitatively different. It had a certain type of cold water that was the symbol of regeneration because it was tied to the, of course, the story of Osiris and the drowning in the Nile. And this was also where the Egyptians went to the Nile to baptize the dead as a way to recall Osiris's drowning in the Nile. The Yoruba people of Central Africa, you could go on and on, guys. I got a lot of them, but I'm not going to go on and on because I got to get this done. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of these. The Yoruba very interesting. You also see this in Sierra Leone, but not often because it's it's usually in private, right? Is they usually sent a priest to be at birth alongside the mother and the family. And the priest was the discerner or is the discerner whenever this happens still. 
The priest is the one looking for the souls of the gods and ancestors that dwell in the child at birth. So the child comes out and there's already souls in there. There's spirits, right? And what the priest is discerning is what spirits are in this little baby in addition to the ones already in there, which are obviously his family spirits, the mom and the dad. There's other spirits in there, and that's how the child gets its name. The priest is discerning the spirit and then says, given all that I see, I have a name. But the discerning is done through and by a bathing ceremony that includes ritual sprinkles on the kid's face. Mm, Cleaning him up to see clearly into his soul. Bum, bum, bum. I'm just saying this stuff to you guys, and I could go on and on because, man, these events were baths, scrub-a-dub-dub bathing events. And there's something in it all. There's something very important about the water and the image of water and iconography and all of it. It's very safe to say that the old world understanding of bathing was you got to do it. There are ritual implications to bathing. So do it. You can feel it in the way the old world operates. Even with us right now in a world that's not so old, even in Africa, but you can feel it. It's a right. It's a thing to be considered seriously. It's vanity to be sure it's vanity, but it's also a way to slow down, get clean, get clear, get centered. Just go to a Korean spa sometime. I've gone. I'm a Korean spa person. I know you're probably like, that dude goes to a Korean spa. He should go more often because it's not working. Getting clean has spiritual implications. It just does. And that's why it's interesting how the early modern light people. Yeah. And that's kind of our thing on here to talk about this. It's interesting how the early modern light people approach bathing. As science becomes more materialistic in nature, 16, 17, 1800s, it also becomes more influential. And you see light people's society sort of debating whether or not to bathe more or less. It's true. Go look it up. Some argued for more bathing as a way to avoid plague and disease. Other people, using the science, you've heard that phrase before, follow the science. Some other people following the science, thank you, Dr. Fauci, thought of bathing as a way to spread diseases. There was a scientific argument. As cholera started to become known as cholera, as what we know and how how it is spread, then Europeans began to fear bathhouses and communal bathing. In fact, Europeans of this early modern period, we're talking like 16th, 17th centuries, many came to believe that bathing was downright dangerous. And if you go back to last week, Uh, Many of those were apparently the English who don't bathe very often. Sorry, English people. I love you. Your soccer league is fantastic. I really like what you've done with the River Thames. I really like what you're doing. But aren't big bathers, aren't big toothbrush people either. But we love you. You gave us who we are. Did you, though? Are we? Anyway, we bathe a lot. Go back and look at last week. Americans are doing like 13-minute average showers. 
trillions of gallons of water. Way to go, America. Go bigger. Go home. Anyway, so there was this debate. And many of the the, the new science, following the science, it, it got people to fear that that submersing themselves in water, they risked toxins infiltrating the body through the pores. This was a result of early scientific conversations by guys like Robert Boyle, really one of the fathers of science, Isaac Newton, Pierre Gassendi, all these guys. The earliest scientists are starting to regard the world differently. And they come up with this, the science of the corpuscle. It's really the beginning of the science of the molecule. And corpuscle science people got hyped. And you can see Europeans at this time changing their shirts frequently and taking dry baths, wiping themselves down with a cloth, not entering this foreign space of water where things can get into you. You see a move toward personal baths and away from communal bathing. You see the little people, right? The little poor people, you see them eventually catching up to folks like Edward III, who was one of the first to install a bathroom in his palace at at Westminster. You see the wooden tub become a thing in late medieval bedrooms because the wooden tub is a singular event done by a singular person who knows what water they're putting in their singular tub. So as the science and the art of things, right, the art of things mystical, right, as science started this long 400-year dance with the things mystical, with the spiritual world, you see inventive ideas being born alongside bathing ideas and bathing inventions. So. A couple, and then we'll end and get into the idea of baptism. From about 1800, portable metal bathtubs gradually replaced wooden ones. And in the 19th century, you see some people using hand pump showers. By the early 1900s, bathing had entered its current European renaissance. You get technology like piping, plumbing, You get more and more people installing tubs and showers in their homes. You start to get what we have. This is by the 1800s. And then showers eventually become standard in the early 20th century. And in America, by 1945, they are dominant. They are the majority, right? In the majority of homes in America, showers. England, 1960, you see that a shower is standard. Then a French guy comes along, and he invents the hairdryer in 1890. And you get paper towels invented by a guy named Arthur Scott in 1907. You get, oh, you get toothpaste sold in jars in 1892. Washington Sheffield invented the collapsible toothpaste tube. 1988, deodorants invented. 1901, razors for men are sold. They're, yeah, throwaway. And you get women starting to shave their underarms by 1910. And here's my favorite little fact by the progressive era. You're talking the 1920s. The continuing dirtiness of people who couldn't afford their own bathtubs. Well, it became a big enough public concern that cities began providing free bathing facilities as an essential public service. You know, like healthcare. Before we could get a national health care, we got a national 
bathing program. <laughs> it's like Obamacare, but like Obathacare. With all of this, you see the birth of a regime we call bathing. And for one, I'm thankful for modern bathing. But I still love an African bucket bath even more. It's because of the sunsets. And that's where we're going to leave off today. So next time, we're going to look at baptism and how all this bathing and all this water, right, its implications in the spiritual world and how societies understand the idea of getting pure, getting clean. And we'll do it by kicking off our look at the Christian ideal of baptism. And who should get it and who shouldn't and why. This all for free on Watar. www.first-things.org. Go there. Join our Substack. Join our recurring donor list. If you do that, I'm going to call you. I mean, on the interweb and reach out and say thank you and join you and invite you to join us for a chat once a year, once a month, <laughs> once a month. On water. See you soon. Peace out.